Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's well, hello dig deeper. and welcome to this week's episode. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan. Wherever, whenever, however you're joining us, we're thanking you that you're here. And joining me here in the studio is Tim Cockrell. And this past Sunday, Tim shared a message with our church from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. That's the letter to the church at Ephesus. And we'll be discussing that passage and Tim's message in the coming minutes. So, Tim. Let's jump right into it. From the first couple of verses of this passage, you suggested that Jesus' sovereignty and his nearness to his people are on display. And specifically, you referenced Jesus' protection and his awareness and the resulting comfort and warning that these two concepts should be evident to those under his care. So uh, let's talk about how this realization should affect my day. Yeah, I mean, this is really practical Christology, right? As we look at who Jesus is, the reason he begins each of these sermons or letters with the revelation of his character is because it's not just information to know, but it's it's truth that transforms us. So the first one there is that he holds the seven stars in his hands. It refers to his, his sovereignty, his power, his protection. And I think that transforms our day because how many times do I struggle with anxiety, or fear, or worry uh, of the unknowns. You know, well, what happens if this happens to one of my kids, or I'm not aware of of some need that comes available, or, you know, preach a lousy sermon, and they decide they don't want to be their pastor, whatever it might be, that just resting in God's sovereignty and remembering that there is no enemy that can oppose his will. There is no knowledge that is greater than him. There's no, no power that can ever overpower him. That gives us a sense of boldness to do whatever he has called us to do. And then we think about his nearness. I do think that for the original recipients of this letter, it was meant to be an encouragement that he hasn't abandoned them. Sometimes when we experience suffering or opposition, we can feel like, God, either you're not there or you don't care. Because if you were there or you did care, you'd do something about it. And so him assuring them that he is present, he's aware over and over again, he'll say, I know but that he's allowing this for a particular reason, for their testing, for their growth, and ultimately for the message of the gospel. But there's also this accountability piece to it. You know, there's that that really deeply rich theological song, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, for the Father up above is looking down in love. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, and on and on it goes. That This awareness that nothing that we do escapes his notice, and that, that encourages us when we're faithful, but it also convicts us when we have not done what he's called us to do. So as we glimpse Christ in his presence and his protection, I would think those would be some of the ways that it affects our daily life. I remember the book that I read in college. I was 18, 19, 20 years old, Charles Sheldon's In His Steps. Mm -hmm. And of course, back a number of years ago, we had the bracelets that were in everybody's uh, arms. And that was the WWDJ, what would Jesus, or WWJD, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry, what would Jesus do? Uh, Perhaps we need to just be asking, Jesus, what do you want me to do Mm -hmm. in this case? Exactly. Tim, I think... This this is a letter, uh, the, a message that is sent to a church. Let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, it, it's not sent to individuals. It's sent to the church at Ephesus, mm-hmm. as each of these next each of these seven letters are uh, letters within a letter, so to speak. Yep. But what is? Can we talk a little bit about the difference of Jesus talking to a church as opposed to talking to 
an individual, like a Timothy, Paul talking to Timothy, mm-hmm. Jesus is talking to the church as a whole. How is that message a little different from talking to individuals? Right. Well, I think, first of all, it recognizes that God designed us for community, that if we are going to live the way he wants us to, I can't love the way God's called me to if I'm doing that in isolation. If I can be so bold, I can't be in community if I never show up to church or if I do it all virtually or online. Now, I say that even with the understanding that there are some people for health reasons and for other reasons that that they can't be in church. And for those reasons, I'm thankful for those tools. But I think that's the first thing that, that I would observe. And secondly, I think the the importance of being his witness is not just something we do individually. You know, Marcus shared that with us at the beginning of October as he preached out of Acts, that we are all called to be witnesses individually. But the idea that the church is to be a lampstand, to shine the light of Christ, is something that we also do corporately. And so Jesus cares about the purity of his church, but he also cares about cares about the relationships within that church. And that's, I think, his focus here as he speaks to this congregation of believers. Okay, good, thanks. Well, in verse 2, Jesus commended the church's toil. You reference these, his per- their perseverance and the passion. But they were exercising each of these strengths without the the love, uh, as uh, Jesus indicates, without the love that they had at first, which they had abandoned, is what the ESV mm-hmm. says. Uh, first of all, I thought it was interesting that Jesus uses such an active verb, abandon, here in the ESV, uh, left in the King James and uh, NASV. I've also seen the word forsaken. It seems pretty serious. I mean, it almost seems like a divorce of of type. Right. Well, it's definitely very stark language, especially when we read it against the very positive commendation that Jesus has given them. And I think it's stark for a reason, that it's to kind of wake them up. We've all had a time where we're sitting in church or sitting in some situation, and all of a sudden we hear, did I hear that right? And, And he says, this is what I have against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. It's not just that you've, you know, begun to dilute the love or, or you're occasionally forgetful, but that you've become so devoted to some other priority that you've lost sight of your first love, your, your first priority. And so I think Jesus uses this stark language to make it clear in no uncertain terms how serious this problem really is. I remember a time somebody chastised me a little bit and uh, suggested that I had lost, lost my first love for her. Hmm. And I was so focused on everything. And I remember that. And it was a stark thing in tears. I said, what do I need to do? Hmm. And that gets into a, a, another idea. He talks about, and I just want to jump to it because it kind of fits within the context of, of what, what you were saying there. But in verse five, mm-hmm. he goes down and he says, remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. It's interesting to me that he doesn't say, just love me. Mm -hmm. He says, do the works. Let's talk about that a second. Yeah, and I think, you know, on Sunday I referenced Matthew 25. Sometimes I think we as Christians can imagine, well, works are somehow like we need to avoid that. We just need to have faith. Well, all throughout the Bible, we see that faith is evidenced in the works that we do, specifically relationally with one another. And so when we have the sheep and goats judgment of Matthew 25, these two very similar groups laid side by side, Jesus welcomes the one group and he says, enter into the joy of your master for when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink and on and on it goes. 
that Jesus is charging them not just to have some emotion, some syrupy sentimentality of love, which is quite honestly how the world often views it, but rather I would define love as prizing and prioritizing the needs of someone else ahead of my own. And let's be honest, that's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. It requires sacrifice and selflessness, which is exactly what Jesus wants. And so we don't do that just by a certain mindset, but through a certain pattern of behavior, which is why I think he calls them, go back to those same patterns of behavior that you had initially. Which were fueled by a great love. James talks about this, the same type of thing. Exactly. Well, in our, this concept of love in our adult Bible fellowship on Sunday morning, we talked about love for Christ being really a type of a, a secret sauce, really, mm-hmm. that is, is to flavor everything we do for him and, and for others. And assuming that is true, why does it seem so hard to keep that focus? I mean, again, we can. I'm guessing that I'm not weird in that uh, I've had to be approached by a wife who says, you're not loving me like you should. Mm-hmm. And we all, in some way, shape, or form, probably have to deal with things like that. Mm-hmm. Why is that so hard? Well, I can only speak for myself. And it's because I, I love... I think you can speak for me, too. <laughs> I love myself. I love to be comfortable. I love to have things done my way. I love to not be inconvenienced. I love to feel like I'm in control. And many times, the people that are around us challenge those preferences, uh, inconvenience our schedule, frustrate our desires. And in those moments, we have a choice either to lay down our life in the same way that Christ laid down his life for us, or to take up an offense and to be frustrated or irritated or distant. And many times when I'm behaving in unloving ways, it's simply because I love myself more than I love that person. And what Jesus is saying here in this letter, as well as throughout the scripture, is when that happens, it's ultimately a deficiency of my love for the Lord. That I'm sitting in his seat, if you will, saying, you all are here to serve me rather than we are all here to serve him. So talk about love for God Mm -hmm. and how that is to play out. Certainly we have the the things we ought to be doing. We ought to be bathing ourselves in his word, Mm -hmm. Uh, certainly spending time in prayer, devoted prayer. Mm -hmm. Uh, We might talk about fasting. We might talk about a number of things, Mm -hmm. Uh, certainly fellowship with his people. Uh, What other things come to your mind when we talk about doing those works? I mean, yes, I love God, but Mm -hmm. how am I showing it? Right. I mean, the thing that comes to my mind is in, I think it's John 13, as well as in 1 John 5, to love God is to keep his commandments. Mm -hmm. And I think that presses against our world's definition because love ends up feeling more like emotion to most of the people in, in our world. But to Jesus, our love for him is demonstrated in submissive obedience, that we would take him at his word and trust him to say, even though the world says this, you know, illicit sexual pleasure is going to satisfy, I'm going to to operate with purity because I love Jesus more. Even though the world says position or possessions are what's going to really provide what you need, I'm going to trust that if I seek first the kingdom, then all those other things that I need will be provided by the Lord. So, so that's certainly one um, item that comes to my mind. I think evangelism is another good barometer that if we love something, 
You know, if, if you've got somebody that, that loves the Cincinnati Bengals, you're not probably going to have to twist their arm real hard for them to talk about the Cincinnati Bengals or whatever their favorite show is or, or hobby. Political well, candidate. Exactly. In the same way, if we truly love Jesus, if we're delighting in him, we ought to be wanting to share that with other people. Just like if you're standing there this morning and there was a beautiful sunrise and, and Katie came in and said, did you see that sunrise outside? I said, I did. You know, that when we truly delight in something, we want to share it with something, someone else. And I think that's another good barometer for us. Good. Well, uh, let's go to another stern warning in verse 5. Uh, let's go back there. Jesus suggests that if the church doesn't do what he said, remember, repent, and do the works they did at first, he will remove it, their lampstand or its lampstand, that church's lampstand, from its place. Uh, that sounds scary, but mm-hmm. what exactly is he talking about? Remove your lampstand. That's pretty cryptic. It is pretty cryptic, and that, as a result, you can look in different commentaries and things, and you can read pages and pages. Let me first of all say, I don't believe Jesus is talking here about a loss of salvation. Uh, that's something that some people might read into this, and for good reason, because if you look at the corresponding contrast, so if you don't repent, you know, then I'll remove your lampstand. If you do and are faithful and overcome, then you'll have eternal life. Well, it'd be easy for you to then say, well, does that mean the other people don't have eternal life? But I think there's a couple of things. First of all, he's writing to the church, which assumes that at least a portion of these people are genuine believers. And because of a variety of theological things that that we don't have time to fully unpack here, we don't believe we can lose our salvation. There's nothing we did to earn our salvation. Therefore, there's nothing we can do to lose it. So the idea that all of them would somehow lose their salvation is, is contrary to what we read in many other places. What I believe this is referring to is that the lampstand represents the church's witness to the world, that they are there to shine the light of Christ to the people that are in darkness who are all around them. And so if they are not behaving in loving ways, they are not rightly representing who God is. You know, maybe they're, they're demonstrating his justice, but not his mercy. And he says, if you don't begin to show love, I'm going to remove your lampstand and that they will die off, be dispersed and disappear as a localized congregation. And it's interesting. And at least one of the resources I was studying last week said, to this day in Ephesus, there is no meaningful church that we're aware of. Now, whether that's a fulfillment of that or whether that's a, a result of a number of other things, we don't know. But I do think we don't want to blunt the warning that is here that Jesus takes it very, very seriously when his church doesn't model the love that we ourselves have received. In fact, I mean, you can go on and read some of these other letters. Some of these other churches were really, really messed up. I mean, cultural compromise, idolatry, immorality. He never threatens the removal of their lampstand, but he does for this church in Ephesus because of how seriously he takes the priority of love. It sounds like perhaps this is the same warning to a church that, or similar warning to a church that Paul gave in, was it 1 Corinthians chapter 11, to the individuals who were not practicing faithfully, mm-hmm. the Lord's Supper, he says, some of them have even died as a yes. result of their uh, their lack of a propriety in right. this matter. Okay. Yep, exactly. There, there would be temporary, temporal consequences, but still eternal security. Right. Okay, good. And then we have the promise, verse mm. 7. It says that the one who conquers will eat of the tree of life. 
Now, you've connected this with the opening scene of our Bible in, in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 and the final scene in Revelation 22, just a continuation of the story, restoration of mm-hmm. God's people and of the whole earth. Right. And I think for this church that was so steeped in doctrinal purity and, and perseverance, being reminded of the whole point is relational. Mm. The whole point is that we be restored into the relationship that God intended in the garden and that he will fulfill in the new creation. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is when we look there at the tree of life in the end of book, the book of Revelation, it says its leaves are for the healing of the nations. And it's almost like he's instructing them, you need to demonstrate love as my witnesses now. Because this world is broken with conflict and pain and fear relationally. But one day, there will be no longer any need for that. Because conflict and sin and pain and fear will all go away. And will be perfectly related to God. will be perfectly related to one another because we will be home. But until that day, let's press on looking forward with that hope. And I think that's what orients us in this text. Both from a corporate church standpoint, but individually be looking for that hope. Exactly. Be uh, eagerly anticipating. Good. Okay, so you made a comment near the end of your sermon. You said that this message to the Ephesian church probably best is best characterized or, or it best characterizes uh, Grace Baptist Church hmm. more so than any of the other six letters. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and how that plays out. And let's just go to the, to the end. How can a church, Grace Mm -hmm. Baptist church, for example, here in Cedarville, Ohio, how can we guard against falling into the patterns that the Ephesians church did? Right. Well, just quickly, you know, some of the similarities that I see are that the Ephesians church's greatest strengths were correspondingly their greatest weakness. So, you know, Grace Baptist Church has a rich heritage as a legacy church where we're rooted in God's word. We are faithfully teaching God's word. I think we are are diligent to uphold doctrine with, with clarity and precision. I think we also take the purity of God's church very seriously, even to where we're willing to practice church discipline, which isn't something that's necessarily popular in our world. But at least identifying the risk of being so busy knowing about God that we lose sight of actually knowing him relationally. And so busy spotting the error, not just in false teachers, but maybe even in one another with a a bit of a judgmental spirit that we don't really demonstrate grace to others in the same way that we've received it. So if that's a danger for us, and I think we have to recognize it could be a danger for any of us. What do we do about that? Well, I think I maybe sound like a broken record on this, but I think we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day to remind ourselves of how patient and loving and gracious Jesus has been, how much we need his grace and his mercy every single day. Because the more we frame our mind with that, the more we are going to be able to extend that to other people. It also reminds us that Jesus didn't come just to save us from hell or to get us to heaven. He saved us that we might be in a relationship with him, that we would be filled with his spirit, that we would be in communion with God, that we would be conformed to his image. And that really changes the Christian life, that it's not just we're now amassing knowledge, but rather we are being transformed by the revelation of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. 
And then I think it, it largely is a matter of spiritual discipline. You know, that if somebody says, well, how do I, I learn to read my Bible every day? Well, without sounding simplistic, you, you do it, whether you feel like it or not. In the same way, as we seek to love others, we prioritize it in our finances. We prioritize it in our schedules. We look for intentional ways to open our home, even when it's kind of inconvenient after a long week of, of work. We show those tangible expressions of love, especially to those people who are not like us. We go beyond those boundaries of familiarity or comfort. And as we do that, we begin to stretch those muscles in ways that remind us on the front lines of how much they need that love and how much we need it as well. seems to me that uh, congregations, churches have DNA. Mm. We've talked about this Mm -hmm. in elders meetings. Uh, DNA, just like individuals have DNA. And the water from which you have risen uh, or, or you know you're made from uh, can often dictate some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses mm-hmm. and I think probably we see that here at Grace yep for sure I mean I see it even in my own family there's certain times where my kids will do certain things and as I'm going to correct them oh, I'm thinking no. to myself man this feels really familiar yeah, I know exactly where they got that from um, but I, I think Maybe just one more piece to that earlier question is is just awareness. Being on our guard against those temptations that might play toward our tendencies and then having others around us that can help us to see what we don't see. And so as somebody who can be a, a driven type A type person, I always want people around me who are going to help me to see what I don't see and help me to slow down in times when I need to. That's part of the purpose of the church is that we lend each other our strengths and as a result represent Christ in a robust way. And would it not be true that uh, there is a certain responsibility in the church that's given to its leadership Mm -hmm. to come clean before God and lead the congregation in recognizing what our weaknesses tend to be. Mm-hmm. And that falls on those elders, even even deacons who are leading in certain areas to say, okay, we need to own this and we need to, we need to repent and remember, repent and move forward. Right. And I think that's most effective when we begin by doing that personally. Mm-hmm. You know, that was something I was trying to, to model even just in small ways on Sunday to say, you know, many times what I need to repent of are these types of selfish tendencies because the more we model that, I think the more it makes our church a safe place to be honest about the ways that we fall short. Next week is Smyrna. Can you talk a little bit about what you're studying and Absolutely. what we might be able to expect? We were just chatting in our preaching team. It's it's very interesting. We go from the church in Ephesus that probably is the most like uh, Grace Baptist here in Cedarville to the church of Smyrna, which I would say is probably the least like our church in that they were enduring intense persecution, even martyrdom for their faith. And so we go from one church that we can easily identify with to another that we say, wow, this is very different. But, you know, this church was enduring some incredibly difficult persecution uh, financially, physically, imprisonment, separation of families. And the word of Jesus to them is just such a sweet word to remind them that he is the Lord over life as well as over death. And that if they follow him, even to the point of death, 
they won't experience the second death because he's already emerged on the other side. And so we're going to spend some time specifically focusing on prayer for the persecuted church. Uh, you know, Hebrews chapter 13 reminds us that we need to be praying for those who are in prison for their faith, who are enduring opposition, and it's very easy for us in, in an insulated environment to lose sight of them. And so we want to kind of align our hearts with brothers and sisters who are, are experiencing exactly what the church at Smyrna was. Very good. Hey, Tim, thanks a lot. Appreciate you being with us and uh, sharing your heart with us. My pleasure. Tim Cockrell has been my guest for this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. You can access Grace sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next time. We'll continue our discussion of God's Word in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. That's the message to Smyrna. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.